I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You are very welcome to this bank holiday edition of the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with me, Ken Early, and you, Carol Murphy. Hello, Ken. It's, now, weird. it's weird to recalibrate my neck to look to my left when yeah. you're speaking and not straight ahead. Not straight ahead. Just the, to paint a picture for the, the listeners at home. Well, I'm here because Owen McDevitt is not here. Yes. And he is currently there slogging he is and around. There he gone. He's slogging around the misty streets of Dublin. Mm-hmm. 26.4 miles or something like that. Point two. 26.2. 26.2 miles um, around those misty streets doing the Dublin Marathon as he occasionally likes to do. And this is one of those this is one of those years. So uh, he may even be finished by now. I'm not 100% sure how, how long it's going to take him this time. Uh, it's uh, Actually, as we record, I would say that he's very close to the target time. Really? As we yeah, as as me and you are talking right now, he he should be fin- if he's finishing now, he should be happy enough. Happy enough, I think. Because he is going to be in later on he to refused- record. Yeah. The second, the other podcast that we're going to do today. After doing the marathon, he he, he gets wrapped in a space blanket. He he shivers a little bit mm. with that sort of distant, uh, that that distant haunted look in his eyes, and then he gets up on his his bruised little feet and strolls in here to record <laughs> to record a podcast. He is a horse of a man. He is. He's a ho- Ken. You took the words right out of my mouth. He's a horse of a man. Slow for a horse, but strong for a man. <laughs> so he's he's going to be here. I can promise that. It is an extraordinary uh, feat of dedication to one's life, one's work. Yeah. To run a marathon and then, and then come in. Now, one of the pieces that we're going to do in the show later on is about the marathon. Um, but the other one's about rugby. I mean, yeah. I don't know how he's going to actually focus on all of that. But I mean, listen. I, why would we, do, we? Why would we start to doubt the man? It's now? not our place to question the work-life balance uh, in, <laughs> that he's currently uh, in, in yeah. play. There, it's simply to stand back and applaud his dedication. And there is, in fact, a link between his exertions in the marathon and uh, what we're going to be talking about today, Karen. Because 
the Premier League is it? No, the no, Premier League. No. Well, 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 the big. What's the big story of the Premier League over the weekend? Jose Mourinho. No, we are going to be talking about Jose Mourinho later on. But the the main thing that happened probably in the Premier League this weekend. We well, if you're to... watching, well, if you're watching matches there too, the least important game of the entire weekend mm. was Manchester City Manchester United. Oh yeah, that's well, not what you're talking about either. No, we are. We will talk about that. But no, I'd, I would say. I mean, we have to, like, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and Tim Sherwood. Mm. His his managerial career lies bloodied and beaten in the gutter, uh, having been uh, sacked by Aston Villa. Now, hopefully, Tim Sherwood will get up, dust himself off, and and be back in football before you know it. But uh, for the time being, he's out of football, and this seems to have uh, happened because of certain issues at Aston Villa. We could get into that. Maybe we should. Um, maybe you should. Uh... Uh, time for Kennedy's report on sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Tim Sherwood is uh, has been sacked by Aston Villa. Did you? Uh, sorry, did you? Not, did you just really not want to say the words? Let's get into Kennedy's report on sport. It would just seem as though I mean, uh, you know, it's to sort well, of. You're the band your, leader. You're just asking the just, band behind you to strike up a tune, and yeah, on you go. I wouldn't. You know, I mean, I was just asking you to give the word. Okay. Uh, Tim Tim Sherwood is gone, and it seems as though there was some behind the scenes friction at Aston Villa. Essentially. It's what's becoming a kind of an old story now of uh, the manager doesn't really sign the players. Uh, however, uh, he does have to do the post-match interview in which their players' poor performance is discussed. And sometimes the manager can't resist kind of letting everybody know that maybe if he'd been in charge of picking players, we'd have a different team out there. Uh, and this seems to have been the, the case of Aston Villa where... Uh, Tom Fox, the chief executive, uh, where Randy Lerner, the owner, obviously the owner who previously had, had been scarred by managers who came in and signed a lot of, let's say, senior professionals, senior professionals who played well for a time and then the contracts went on for longer than that time. So what he wants now is to get young players into Aston Villa, young, cheap players who can be sold. Uh, if they play well, they can be sold for a lot of money. And if they don't play well, it's not that difficult to get rid of them somewhere else. Uh, you're taking the financial downside risk is lower. However, the, maybe the Premier League points risk is a, is an, yeah. un, an underestimated risk. You know, uh, Villa currently have four points from ten games, which isn't very good. Uh, and you know, Tim Sherwood was saying things after the game, which they lost to Swansea on Saturday. Um, like, well, you know, we can only get with the players what's in them. You know, we can't turn them into superstars. We have to play at our... Yeah, I actually was watching much today on Saturday as well. We have to play at our absolute maximum, all 11 players. To get anything out of any game. <laughs> Literally, uh, you know, whereas mostly you'd say... So you're the worst team in the league. That's what that's saying. It's it's saying that. It's saying literally our players are, are of a level where every single one of them needs to have the game of their lives for us to get anything in any game. So... That's the situation. Anyway, see you all for work on Monday, said Tim. Actually, Villa said, okay, you know what, Tim? We can't, uh, you know, we're going to have to get someone who at least is capable of pretending to have faith in our squad because, quite frankly, uh, we're going to get relegated if we keep going like this. Uh, And maybe Tim Sherwood will be happy to be out of there. I mean, the people he was sharing with included uh, the director of recruitment at Aston Villa, Paddy Riley. Paddy Riley, and this is the link to Owen McDowell, is a marathon runner. Oh, right. Yeah. So he, you know, he's he used to work for Villa, then he went and worked for Liverpool for a while, now he's back at Aston Villa. He's uh, the head of recruitment and scouting, and he likes to run marathons. 
Uh, he, how many? Like how? How many are we talking about here? Is well, he one of these guys that runs like ten a year or something? All I know is that in two thousand eight, he ran a marathon. Uh, I think it was a London marathon of three hours one minute, which is fast, right? How How old is he? Uh, similar sort of age to Owen McDevitt, I think. Oh, okay, okay. He's not like you know one of these like geriatric guys who's like just. Oh, oh no, you know, no, like, no. He's a he's a, you know one of he's one of the new wave of numerate football men, um, and he would have known that three hours and one minute was just outside the three hours where basically mm. you can say right. I'm, you're not I'm gonna, a top. I'm a top marathon runner. Yeah, you're not. That, that's not going to be your last marathon. No. If you run three hours and one minute, you're coming back to get the two fifty nine. Yeah, forty five. Um, but on the way, it, well, apparently a man dressed in an Elvis suit was mm. keeping pace with him, and then in the last two miles, powered away. To finish beneath that three-hour barrier, uh, which Omri David had a similar, I think, a similar incident in his mm. own career with the man dressed as a banana. Which would be, I mean, a banana would be even more difficult, really, to to run dressed as than an, than Elvis. Elvis is just, you know, you put a pair of sideburns and a wig on. Well, yeah, but I mean, would no, you if go you're, the, you're still wearing shorts, would I mean, you go you with the extremely it. tight trousers though? Those tight, high-waisted white trousers that Elvis popularized in, in his I think you could customize. I think you could customize an outfit that w- would match, you know, uh, extreme style, or you know, would match, you know, sort of the 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 fancy dress uh, element that you're going for mm-hmm. with comfort and uh, running uh, safety. You know, I hope that 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 is what happened. It would have been a difficult thing for Paddy Ryder. Like, but you know, he picked himself up and he and he came back to have this excellent career in football recruitment. Unfortunately. Tim Sherwood, it seems. I mean, I'm not. I'm not suggesting Paddy Riley is responsible for. There's also Hendrik Almstad. Uh, um, Hendrik Almstad being uh, a German uh, football executive who was taken from Arsenal, poached from Arsenal by Aston Villa by Tom Fox, who himself had been poached from Arsenal by Aston Villa. So you can see there actually um, uh, a kind of an old school football man pattern, whereby the football man is recruited and then he recruits people. He, you know, his lads. Mm. Uh, apparently, it's okay for executives to do that, but no, but we like to take the power to do that out of the hands of managers these days. Anyway, this is all a long-winded way of saying Tim Sherwood was part of a transfer committee, you could say. You could call it a transfer committee in Aston Villa, where you had a few people having input into the decisions, and it seems as though he wasn't too happy, ultimately, with what he ended up with. Um, and it's it's a similar type of situation, I guess, to what happened with, with Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool. Um, where you need to, I mean, the the question about this is, you know, I, I'm sure you're going to have lots of people now saying, well, you know, what was Tim Sherwood supposed to do? His hands were tied. This wasn't really his team, and it's not really a fair reflection of his managerial ability. The problem is that this is what managerial ability now means. It's the ability to actually work with a team of people who are going to do this. You can't actually do it by yourself anymore. It's too difficult. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. the The job has changed completely to the extent that you can't ever say your hands are tired. Hands are tied because what you're talking about actually is the parameters of the job. Mm. Unless you're Arsene Wenger and now retired Alex Ferguson, exactly. No, I mean that's just the way it is now. They're the only ones in that situation, and nobody I don't think is going to be in that situation again. And nor should they be because the job, the 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 increase, the job has got more difficult and more complicated. I'm not saying that this is a a good thing for managers or makes a manager's job easier to have this team full of people, full of bright ideas who, who bring ideas to the table and perhaps players to the table. It might actually be better for the club, though, to yeah. have more than one pair of eyes scanning all of world football to find players for your team. Well, I think so. I think it probably is. Um, it's, it's not as easy for the manager. I mean, what it does is it dilutes the power that the manager used to have where 
all the players knew the manager had this godlike power to either to to uh, to sign them, you know, if they were with other clubs, to play them in the team uh, or not play them, and then to get rid of them if if he decided he didn't fancy them, and that meant that made the manager's job a little bit easier. He he was holding, you know, he was holding the whip hand there. Why is it holding the whip hand? By the way, is it not just having? I suppose holding the hand that's holding the whip, or just holding not with the hand. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the man, the yeah, manager, I, was, I was going to. Yeah, no, you're probably best just to plow out there. The, yeah. the manager was in was in charge in a way that now, say, a player is, is signed by a sporting director, and then the manager doesn't like the player and leaves him out all the time. Then the sporting director is is feeling a bit is feeling angry about that. He's like, well, hang on a second. This is this is a pretty good player. He knows that the owner is looking at that, going, well, sporting director's picks don't seem to be doing too well this year. So he's going to be a little bit. You know, there's going to be there's potential for a bit of conflict. He might be calling the manager saying, "Why is my guy not in there?" His player might be he might be talking to his player saying, "Hey, listen, don't worry about it. Maybe your maybe your problems aren't gonna." Yeah, there's like there's a series of relationships there, but the player's relationship with the sporting director, the guy who actually signed him, that doesn't actually matter. You know, there's that's not a part of the the club, the the hierarchical structure. Which it shouldn't it, matter, but yeah, but it, I think maybe. I think maybe it would. I mean, obviously, the sporting director has his own agenda. He wants everyone to look at him and think, well, what a great job he's doing. What a, what a wonderful bunch of players he's signed. He's really good at his job. Maybe he'll get a move to a bigger club. But if, he, if all the players he signed are being left to rot in the reserves by the manager who is then going on TV and saying, you know, we can't make these players into world beaters, uh, then he's not going to look good and maybe he's going to be... So the point is, it's a much more complicated political situation. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mess and it's been difficult for, say, Brendan Rodgers to deal with. It's clear, it appears it's been difficult for Tim Sherwood to deal with. But the alternative is for guys like Tim Sherwood and Brendan Rodgers to be in charge. And I don't really see how that can work anymore either. That maybe worked when the only players you had to keep an eye on were the ones in the same division as you or maybe the division below. Now you literally have to be aware of players all over the world. There's... There's an, there's an entire world full of brilliant football players. You have to try and find them somehow, and it's very difficult for a football manager, who, by the way, has a pretty busy job, which would take up a lot of hours, to keep abreast of the global transfer. It can't actually be done. But when other clubs are doing it, if your club doesn't do it, your club is going to lose. Your club is going to fall behind. So what should the manager do in a situation like that then? Because uh, it's obviously very tempting when you don't like the players that the the transfer committee have signed and you're not going to play them, it's very tempting tempting to mention that either in a subtle way or in a very blatant match of the day, you know, 10.45 on a Saturday evening kind of way. Well, rule number one is you can't do that because that's uh, stabbing all your teammates in the back and they're not going to like it and you will, you will get sacked. That's rule number one. If you want to keep your job, don't do that. But rule number two, and this is equally important, is that if you have a strong conviction that a player is not the right player, you have to say that at the committee stage. And if you're really convinced about that, you have to stick by your convictions. Uh, a case in point, I think, would be... Um, the Balotelli. Ba- yes, Balotelli. Balotelli was clearly a player Brendan Rodgers didn't really want to sign, but was prepared to be talked into signing. And, you know, you have encountered it in Stephen Jarrett's book where he's saying... You know, I'm going to take a gamble. The gamble is Mario Balotelli, you know. And then Balotelli, if you remember, played reasonably well in his first match against Tottenham. And Brendan Rodgers, if you if you call, was after that game saying, it's just a question of treating him like an adult. You know, he said, I don't mark on corners. I said, you do now. And I think that, well, Balotelli was performing 
decently, Brendan Rodgers would have been quite happy to take credit for, you know, helping to turn his career around. But once Balotelli's delivered a string of pathetic performances, then Brendan Rodgers was kind of, well, ha- well, hang on a second here. You know what I mean? And it was kind of, it, be, it became quite clear, this isn't the player I wanted. You know, it wasn't as though he was defending the player as though, like a mother wolf defends his, you know, the cubs. It was like a mother wolf's attitude to someone else's cubs or a cub of a different species. You know, not really particularly uh, going to bat for the player. Now, I don't think you can have it both ways. If you go along with the signing, if you ultimately, at the committee stage, say, all right, let's sign this guy, then you're endorsing the signing. You, are, you might as well have signed that guy. If you feel really strongly that this guy is not going to be, is not going to be a good player for you, in fact, in the case of Balotelli, is going to be actively bad, then you've got to stand up and say that. And you've got to, if you really believe it, you have to stick with your convictions. And maybe, maybe that means, okay, guys, I'm, I don't think I can be part of the team. I really don't agree with the way we're going. Therefore, I'm going to have to step off. You know, that's the kind of a situation which maybe managers are going to be faced with more often. The popular and powerful managers will find the threat of resignation to be a very, uh, very effective negotiating lever in those types of situations. You know, you don't want to be... And, dis- even, if, and even if you're not that popular uh, and successful, uh, maybe it reflects a little better on you uh, than uh, playing a terrible player and... As Tim said, well, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't pick this. I didn't want this guy. Yeah. Seriously. It's not a, it's not a very... Uh, uh, winning trait in a person no. to kind of wash their hands of something that they're they are in fairness pretty intimately involved in rightly or wrongly. Yeah, uh, but sticking with the courage of your convictions when the thing is yet to be decided, it's easy to say in hindsight. Oh, you know, Balotelli's not a good signing. It's more difficult to say, guys, Balotelli when he comes in here will do nothing. He he will be a bad influence on players in this dressing room. He you know it's it's a corrosive thing. I can't. I, really, really don't feel that I can work with him. That's more difficult. Now, I mean, I know all about this, Karen, because at the beginning of this season, I made certain predictions. You did. About how the Premier League title race would unfold. To remind everyone, Peter Cech, Player of the Year, winners of the Premier League, Arsenal Football Club. Arsenal Football Club. What happened? Peter Cech, 3-1 in, first day, Arsenal lost at home. I... Came in here on Monday morning disowned. and denounced. Yeah, you completely <laughs> disowned your own fervently held belief from four days earlier. I disowned all my predictions, and now I'm trying to sidle back up to them again. It's like Balotelli has suddenly started scoring. Uh, he's banged in a couple of goals in his last couple of games, and I'm suddenly going. It's just a question of treating him like an adult. I'm trying to sidle back up to my prediction of Arsenal winning the Premier League as a result of this impressive run of form they've been on, beating Bayern, beating uh, Manchester United. Mesut Ozil playing amazing football. In fact, if you look at the statistics on who scored, obviously the best player in the Premier League is Riyad Mahrez. We know that. Yeah, that's obvious. Yeah. And we know that James Vardy, James Vardy is the next best player in the league. Listen, uh, no one let's, disputes that. let's add the age-old caveat. Outside of Leicester City, who's the best player in the Premier League? <laughs> you know, taking that into account, that hoary old chestnut, outside <laughs> of Leicester City, who's the best player in the if, Premier League? If we take the field without Leicester... The best, the next best player in the Premier League is Santi Cazorla, yep. followed by Dimitri Payet at West Ham, who everyone I think can agree has had a monster yep. of a season so far. Followed by Alexis Sanchez, whose season really only got going a couple of weeks ago. He, he was sleepwalking through the first few uh, games of the season. Followed by Mesut Ozil. So three of the top six and three of the top four outside Leicester, outside of Leicester yeah. are Arsenal Football Club footballers. Um, 
And you know, okay, they beat Everton with a couple of what used to be considered distinctly un-Arsenal goals. A couple of, you know, okay, maybe Tim Howard could have done a little bit better. You know, Tim Howard could have done a lot better on both goals. However, two crosses, two headers, two goals. Um, he can use his hands, you know. I know. When the ball goes in there, he's the only player in the box that can use his hands. It's mad, it's mad isn't it, really, in a lot of ways? He could have. I, it, like, it, the one thing that really struck me about it was that both players were so much higher than Tim Howard's hands. Well, it's as if Tim Howard was starting from a position of him being like five foot three. He was kind of cowering, particularly for the, um, for the, the Giroud, Giroud one. Yeah. And Giroud really got up, and it was like his whole neck had almost telescoped as well, just to get his, his like quiff on the ball, mm. which was all he needed to do to send it past Tim Howard, who sort of reacted as though, oh, my God, you know, like an exploding oil drum was just on the six-yard line. But, look, um, it's pretty good going from Arsenal, who are, uh, well, level with Man City on points behind them. I, goal I suppose difference. now isn't the time to talk about Mares being the best player in the Premier League and Jamie Vardy being the second best player in the Premier League. I mean, how are, we, how are we talking about goals, assists, tackles, um, sex, successful well, I'm, tackles? Well, I'm going by, I'm, I'm just going by the, the who scored rating, which is a complex algorithm generated from, I don't really know what. But uh, looking, at this, looking at the two boys, um, five goals, five assists for Mahrez, um, plenty of chances created, plenty of dribbles, plenty of man of the match awards. All of these things are good. Uh, with Vardy, it's a simpler, it's a simpler story. Hmm. He's, just, he's just bursting the net. You know, yeah. Every every game he goes out there, scores a goal, uh, doesn't get any recognition, mm. and and maybe that's what's keeping him so hungry. You know, the fact that he's just not getting any recognition for clearly being the best striker in the uh, in the league, um, and generally speaking, uh, performing a lot better than some more celebrated players. Now, one of these guys was involved in the match uh, between match the two Manchester clubs. Now, this was. Disappointment. You watched this one yourself? Yes. Uh, it was pretty boring. It was terrible. I mean, it, was. it was so bad. And it's the first time, according to you know the halftime, they, they were saying this is the first time Man United haven't had an attempt on goal of any kind in the first half since Opta started recording this. That's not good. That's really, that's, that's the kind of statistic that sticks in the mind. And Wayne Rooney racked up a lot of pretty amazing statistics in the game. He gave the ball away a couple of times. Well, apparently he lost possession 28 times. And that's when you include his wayward passes, 54% passing percentage for this game, which is, you know, considering his average for the season is 80%. That's bad. For this season? For, for this season, it's 80%. I mean, Rooney, you know, is, is not at least squandering possession at least more than one in five times. He gets the ball. 54% pass accuracy in this game. Van Hal uh, is asked about it afterwards. I have to talk about Rooney every week. Why? You have your opinion, write it. I don't give any more answers about Wayne Rooney. I'm sick of them. Um, but what people want to know is why he's still playing Wayne Rooney. Um, so he was tackled. He was he lost the ball to tackle six times, which is twice as much as the next highest player in the game, which is Kevin De Bruyne, who didn't have a very good game. Um, zero key passes, obviously zero shots. Three miscontrols. Three miscontrols in the game, which is more than anybody apart from Bonnie, who's recovering from malaria, by the way, and lurching around, not really in the form of his life, with Bonnie, and not exactly much of a touch player either. Bonnie's more of a mm. penalty area, tower of strength, you know, get the ball in, he will head the ball into the net. He's not, like, silky. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's just amazing what's going on with Rooney. You know, the worst player in the, in the game, according to those, you know, that algorithmic rating, which doesn't really mean anything. 
uh, I guess. Well, yeah. It doesn't mean anything, but, but you know, we, we have players, you know, informed players at the top of it. Yeah, if, if between the eighth best player and the twelfth best player, it probably doesn't mean anything. But you don't really want to be at the bottom of that list. No. I mean, I'm sure there are a number of key factors that do roughly correlate to your influence on the game. And if you're not having any... And I mean, to be honest, he was... I think the the, the most frightening thing for United fans is just how completely anonymous he is in, and he has been in so many games this year. As in, you've forgotten that he's on the pitch. Yeah. Which is not something that you would have said about Wayne Rooney. That, you know, his, he would have surely failed spectacularly. Like, throughout his career, his failures have been spectacular failures. His uh, moments of brilliance have been spectacular. For him to be, just be completely anonymous... Completely yeah. invisible on the field is is really quite something. Yeah, and uh, it seems like he's in a real spiral now of, of confidence. Um, he knows that everybody is is uh, is watching. It's like everything that everything that he does, he knows is under kind of scrutiny now. And I don't think he's dealing with it very and, well. Yeah, and Martial is uh, adding massively to his own personal problems. Not really making him look good, no. uh, Martial. But you know, both teams I think played quite badly. One shot on target each. Uh, Navas for City, Smalling. Smalling was the Manchester United's most dangerous player in the game. Van Hal said afterwards, I mean, it, it reminded me a bit of the, the first half Manchester United played against Liverpool, which was also terribly boring. Um, and then they, they won 3-1 in the second half. And Van Hal, after the game, said, well, uh, you know, we played better. We played better because yeah. he, he meant we had more control of the game. That's more kind of what I want to see. And this was like a, a, a really... Um, Kind of a pure, purified version of that type of really boring control where you don't actually shoot. And it's interesting to hear Van Hal saying, um, basically, he first of all said City played like you know a small team, defended, organized, you know, you know what sports sports they were. Uh, but he says, uh, you know, it says something about the strength of Manchester United these days. I, you know, the City come here and cower, cower in our um, our, our mountain fortress here and don't think they can get anything out of the game just playing the counter-attack. But he says, but I've said at half-time, we can also shoot from outside the box. You don't have to combine in the 16-meter area. Try and look that way. That was my remark. You can shoot from outside the box. Now you can shoot. Why don't you shoot? So he's kind of saying, guys, well done on executing the game Basically plan. the Stratford end, we're right. <laughs> just every so often try and Phil kick Jones, the ball like, at the yeah, goal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like a team that's almost too obedient at the moment, too carefully carrying out the instructions. And Van Hal is having to remind them, look, you know, you do have to remember. I mean, I'm trying to tell you that I think this is the best way to win games consistently, you know, dominate possession, pass the ball around. But, you know, it's up to you to spot when you can kind of kick the ball into the goal. That's that's a thing as well we need to incorporate. So uh, Jurgen Klopp kind of saying some similar thing. Well, he's taking a more psychological view of it. Uh, another one-all draw for Liverpool. It looked like it was going to be a big moment for them when Benteke scored this, you know, monumental header for them. Uh, kind of a header that's been carved out of marble. Benteke slams in a goal at the cup end, and this like looks it had like been it's going to be from a, a gun. Basically, was what that header was reminded me of. It was su- superb. I mean, his, his goals, his goal against Manchester United was brilliant as well. So he's scoring some nice goals. Looks more dangerous than Origi, who played the first half. Uh, it has to be said. Uh, but only one goal, and generally this kind of frantic performance that we've been giving ever since Klopp took over and conceded a goal at the end. Klopp says, uh, it's only a goal. It's only a game of football. It's like, it's the last thing in your life. We have to calm this down. I don't understand the pressure, but the guys feel it. I hope I'm not the only person in the stadium who thought this isn't the end of the world. We can work on this. 
So Klopp is kind of trying to tell them to, you know, just chillax the cacks to the max in front of goal. Mm. Because this is, uh, you know, this is this is kind of getting silly now. It's not that difficult. And you don't have to worry that much about everything. But, I mean, I, I, I heard a bit of Klopp talking after the game. It was interesting the degree to which the uh, press conference uh, focused on Klopp's own emotional reactions to things. I mean, he was being asked questions about, well, your celebration. You know, you had a big celebration. You really ran, really milked that celebration for all those around here. Ended up looking a bit silly, didn't you? You know, it's because he ran down the touchline or he gave it a bit for the yeah. celebration. And then uh, and when, when the goal went in, you, you just smiled. You just sort of stood there smiling. The Southampton goal, the Southampton yeah. Goal, just sort of stood there smiling, didn't you? And kind of, thought, he was kind of <laughs> standing there sucking his teeth. I thought this is an interesting kind of development now where you're talking to the manager about his, his expressions, his facial expressions and behavior when the goals go in as opposed to like, what do you think happened in that goal? You know what I mean? He's literally being asked to explain why he stood there smiling. Um... I don't know. It, it, it seemed a bit seemed a bit odd, but I suppose he has. He is a kind of a big personality. Just a couple of other things. Um, uh, oh yeah, one of the last thing is just uh, Mascherano involved in a another language controversy. Mm. Another, this time in a Spanish speaking country. Uh, once again, is it uh, seen as innocent banter in his home country of Argentina? It's a typical Argentine expression," said uh, Barcelona manager Luis Enrique. Like here, we say "los cojones." Or something like that. He says, you have to see if he said that to the referee or just to the air. So it sounds like Mascherano basically called the ref a prick. Mm. I got sent off playing for, <laughs> playing for Barcelona. But uh, Luis Enrique saying, hey, you know, in Argentina, this is not offensive. But um, at least for Barcelona, Luis uh, Suarez uh, was informed three goals for them. His record uh, since he arrived, and it was the anniversary of his debut, 57 games, 35 goals. 29 assists, a hat-trick uh, for Barcelona yesterday. Uh, pretty fabulous stuff there mm. from Luis Suarez. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. See if you don't get us out with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so soft, how can I get so deep? You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need your fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! We're joined now by Miguel Delaney, who was at Upton Park to see West Ham beat Chelsea 2-1. Uh, another defeat for Jose Mourinho and Miguel. Another uh, ascending off more controversy. I mean, a lot of the papers today are going with the line that Mourinho was one defeat from the sack. Do you believe these headlines? Uh, well, my understanding is that the biggest issue is really uh, his contract. and uh, Because Mendes is basically going to insist on a full payoff, which could amount to about £10 million a year. And Chelsea would obviously be reluctant to do that. So I think that that could buy him time. There's also the fact that there's um, there's an easier run of fixtures after the Liverpool game. But uh, to be honest, I mean, it doesn't seem to matter what the fixtures are at the moment. Chelsea, just they don't look convincing in any way. There's no security about them. I think with every controversy, even if Abramovich has been minded to keep him, and Chelsea are reluctant 
to completely pay him off. It's, it, it is getting to um, to this kind of end game now. Yeah, and I mean he's he, he's just um, heaping more fuel on the flames, but every week. I mean, this is the this is the thing about. It. I mean, nobody. Tell, can, can you give me uh, to your um, closest your closest understanding of what happened in the tunnel at West Ham? Because nobody can quite seem to agree what went on there. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think most of the journalists there on Saturday spent yesterday try if they were at the United, Manchester Derby trying to uh, trying to find out. There's been a lot of conflicting reports. Um, obviously. When he was when he was on the touchline, despite all the chaos around him and all the anger, particularly from his assistant uh, Silvino Loro, Mourinho all Mourinho did was kind of stay motionless, maybe just uh, add the odd kind of sarcastic clap or a cynical smile. We know for a fact then that he went in. James Collins says that he saw Mourinho waiting for uh, the referee Jonathan Moss, who he does have a history with, uh, outside outside his office. After that. Chelsea themselves say there was a discussion and Mourinho was subsequently um, sent to the stands. Uh, I've heard from one source involved that security, well, if not drag Mourinho away, there, there was um, <laughs> there were heated words, as you'd imagine, the, the very euphemism of discussion, the notes. Yeah. But yeah, it ended up um, with him in the stand. Yeah, and I, I mean, losing all his dignity, you know, being yokled at by Danny Dyer and having photographs of himself, and it's like, where's Wally in the one little sad face in the um, West Ham director, director's box? I mean, it just seemed almost so, uh, almost as though it was engineered by him. I was almost surprised not to see Mourinho joining in with those celebrations. Well, at, at this point, I mean, this, this, this whole thing with Mourinho, that... In order to succeed, I mean, Soriano has that great quote when he was at Barca in the um, in the Diego Torres book. Mourinho's a winner, but to win, he he needs to create a certain amount of tension, and ultimately becomes a problem. And I think that was a big part, a big part of the of the last year. That's confrontational management, but it has got to this point now where you would wonder whether this is all an attempt to try and jolt the team out of what's going wrong with them, or else it's just it's just again to keep an attempt to keep deflecting attention from the fact. He doesn't really seem to know how to fix this team. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm very much uh, leaning towards the second of those two views, Miguel, because I really don't understand how it is uh, that a guy standing on the on the sideline, losing his cool, getting sent off, getting involved in these constant uh, controversies, uh, you know, with the FA. I mean, it, it wasn't. I mean, he, he he got fined recently and had a suspended stadium ban. Uh, and then used his book launch to describe them as a disgrace. Um, he, you know, he's he's creating trouble where there doesn't need to be trouble. And I don't really understand how this is supposed to have any inspirational quality. I don't understand how this is supposed to be a way of turning it around. I don't understand how that process. I mean, might and, and work. the classic thing we're talking about here with Eden Hazard. Hazard was one of a, a, a decreasing number of players on his side. I know for a fact that um, Fabregas still on his side, Terry is still on his side. Aspilicueta is still on the side, Diego Costa is still on the side, and Gary Cahill is still with him. Hazard was one of them fully behind Mourinho. But uh, from, from people who know Hazard talking to us, he, he was amazed at what, what was said about him following the Villa game. I mean, and it's one thing, if, you, if, if you've ever listened to, the Marie, to Chelsea players when they're talking to the media, I mean, it's a very well-media-managed club in that sense, well, until it gets maybe to Mourinho and his antics. Miguel, geez, but, I, I, I mean, you see former Chelsea players on TV uh, covering their mouths when they talk, uh, yeah. when, they're in, when they're in the field. Like, you know, they just, everyone's very aware that people are watching uh, what's being said. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and listen, when, when, you, when you see the Chelsea players talk about Mourinho or all, even all these troubles in the media, they come out with all this, the, the usual go for the best. Like, you're gonna, it's, it's almost as if it's scripted. The best man to get us out of the situation. They, they always say the same thing. And my understanding is that from some players, there is a, a little bit of frustration that, that, that Mourinho himself hasn't responded. Like he, he's publicly criticised a few of them, despite often saying that he, that he hasn't criticised players. And it, it does seem to, have got to say, as you say, it's, it's become counterproductive that it's just causing people, it's, it's causing this aura to evaporate. I mean, I think it was on the show mentioned this a few years, a few weeks ago. But I mean, the big story I, I'd heard that when his, his psychological hold over this team started to fade was last February when he started to go on and on and on about the Diego Costa uh, controversy, you know, with the sky pundits always at him. And some of the players began to realise that this wasn't some deflection tactic. He, he was genuinely, he really cared about it. And I suppose it gets to the point where once this previous authority figure who you had thought was a genius, um, once you see these kind of maybe minor flaws, then that, that, that authority they had begins to get a road. You begin to see them in a different light. And it seems to be happening this season. Even in the first half, I was what, like just keeping an eye on some of the Chelsea players. And like some, some of the 50-50s were just, were just so half-hearted and again this this isn't the intensity we'd associate with Mourinho teams yeah um I, I read the Chelsea website's um match report uh <laughs> it, it talks about how uh Chelsea were unlucky um essentially says uh yeah they were they were hard done by and so on and so forth would you agree with that uh that reading of the game because I mean West Ham have have now amassed a string of wins against pretty much all the top teams in the or the supposedly top teams in the division. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't agree with it at all. I mean, if you, if you look at it, the only thing they can count to see as unlucky is the, is the Fabregas offside call, and even that. I think that he was, was offside. It's open, yeah, it's open to interpretation. Adrian stopped playing, but more important that what should really be worrying for them is the fact that that is the only chance they create in that entire game from open play, mm. and that's been a case all season, and it exposes a, a bigger problem with, with Mourinho as well. Mm. And, and beyond anything else, I mean, just thinking of this in the run up to the game, because Mourinho had made, himself had made such a point of it after the Kiev game, saying we're restoring our resilience. If you've looked at any club in crisis, I mean, you know, it happened to Ferguson times, it's even happened to Wenger. In sport, it was the best way to get out of any crisis. Get rid of all distractions, knuckle down, get, concentrate on doing the basics, and basically show a bit of humility, which is essentially the opposite of what Chelsea are doing. And, yeah. and Mourinho is still just going for these big theatrical gestures, creating more distractions. And there's no there's no sense of this focus at the club. Yeah, no, I don't think it's really fooling anyone. I mean, the, the response to setbacks is just so brittle now. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's as though... Um, they're all kind of running around. The, you know, maybe some of them are still trying to get Mourinho's approval, but it turns out that the way that you win his approval is not by, uh, you know, kind of gritting your teeth and, and, and trying to, you know, club together and win the game. I mean, Chelsea still have better players than West Ham. I mean, that's not something yeah. that's, that's, that's really changed radically over the summer. Um, but the way, what, what they do instead is uh, Nemanja Matic gets sent off and then they all run around like um, idiots uh, and get themselves uh, and and put in these kind of chest thumping displays of oh I can't believe this injustice and Savino Lura gets sent off Fabregas gets booked and it's as though protesting and losing your head is yeah. the way to show uh, the, your manager that you really care. Now, the, the one slight symptom they would have with that is that West Ham did exactly the same in order to get Maddich sent off and they escaped any sanction and then Chelsea did the same and, and they they got two bookings but I suppose that, that in the longer run that's neither here nor there. It is I mean. And it is just so frustrating. This endless. All right, he didn't do he didn't do press 
after the game on Saturday. That's probably self in his telling. I mean, what were we going to hear? M- more guff about referees. Mm. And far, like, I mean, that used to be his whole thing of controlling the message after any setbacks. But now it seems to be just an indication that he doesn't really have any control about what's happening at the moment. He, it, it is as if he, he just doesn't know how to ha- handle this. He doesn't know how to solve it. He doesn't know, he doesn't know which way to turn. And his only recourse is to, is to do what he knows, which is complain about referees, go for dramatic gestures. And this time it's just making the situation worse rather than making it better. Yeah, I mean, do you think, I, I honestly think this is worse even than what happened at Real Madrid because what, what happened at Madrid, you could always look at it and say, well, you know, he's got a few players and he's got Igor Casillas, who's kind of a fading player um, who he's in conflict with and, you know, they're, they're politically powerful players there. I mean, Sergio, yeah. Sergio Ramos is, is not the easiest player for, for a manager to deal with. I don't think, you know, he doesn't like to be told what to do. Um uh, you know, there's this kind of swirl of media surrounding the club and, you know, there's lots of little uh, kind of influences there, which the Chelsea situation, I would have thought, is a bit simpler. I mean, when he arrived in there, especially, he gets a lot more respect from everyone to begin with. Um, you know, it's 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 maybe winning the league with Chelsea is an easier, is a tougher, not as tough enough to crack as winning the league in Spain against Barcelona. Yeah. Um, but this has actually been worse than the than the way that everything ended at Real Madrid. It's been more public. It's been more embarrassing for him. I mean, I'm talking about it as though it's already ended. But, I mean, as far as I can see, this is over. He's, he's not coming back from this. He well, he, that's, that, it, it is worse than Madrid because, I mean, as you say, um, I think some of the problems were of his own making, but there was this existing power block of players that were maybe a bit more resistant to some of his methods. Whereas this time, this is all his team. Like, la- last season, he was rightfully credit- credited for forensically restructuring the entire squad to create the, with this team of winners so <laughs> the extension that be that now it's all unraveling he should be criticized for this like th- th- it, this unlike madrid where even if he maybe provoked the situation with this with this power block they they still responded to it and they, they weren't used to something like this with, with this it's a situation completely of his own making yeah just one last uh, quick thing miguel i mean west ham uh, as we mentioned have, have got all these great uh, victories against big teams and they're pretty high up on the table now um are they kind of smugly uh, delighted now to have got rid of sam allardyce i mean this is more you know seven villages maybe more a manager in keeping with what the kind of club they like to think of themselves as being uh will sam allardyce be smiling smugly uh, at west ham's predicament at the end of the season and uh, i think it'll probably it's like one thing we forget about all of this, maybe, is that at this exact stage last year, in fact, going as far as mid-December, remember when they beat Swansea 3-2 in December, West Ham fans were singing about maybe qualifying for the Champions League. Uh, so they'll probably end up levelling out. Um, in, in, say, in saying that, um, I, I think you maybe have to credit West Ham with making this calculated gamble. It's almost like what Southampton did with, uh, with Nigel Atkins and Pochettino in 2013. Uh, a manager had been doing well uh, but maybe with, with, with certain caveats, they took the gamble to go higher. And e- even if um, it ends up kind of roughly, r- roughly the same position as Allardyce, they're playing better football with a manager they uh, the club identifies more. So it leads to a happier place. Mm. Uh, Billich himself was actually very well, as, as he tends to be all the time. Really, he was very calm after the game. Um, you know, he's been pressed a bit and where they can end up, and he said, "We don't talk in that way." It was actually almost a little Guardiola, just talking about we get we get the process right, we try and do our jobs in every game, and if that happens, then most of our results will be fine. Uh, so he he was quite sedate, even if uh, everyone else at West Ham was not. The place was absolutely rocking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks a million, Miguel. Yeah, no bother. Yeah, it doesn't sound too good, really, uh, for Jose. I mean, the the whole idea of 
it, knowing everything that's been that that's happened over the past few weeks, it seems to me that a guy whose whose sole ambition in life was to turn this situation around, the last thing he's going to be doing is getting himself sent off at halftime in a game, um, you know, in a game against West Ham. It's just. I, I can't fathom, if, if Jose Mourinho is interested in turning Chelsea around, I cannot fathom where that actually comes from. Yeah. Uh, well, the question I would ask is, is Jose Mourinho interested in being a football manager anymore? Because I don't know, like, where, where, like, where, where, what's the, in two years' time, where do you think Jose Mourinho will be? Well, the only club that uh, is the kind of place where Jose Mourinho would, I think, like to manage or has habitually tried to manage that he hasn't actually managed yet is Paris Saint-Germain. And Paris Saint-Germain is, you know, because because they're a big club with a ton of money, he can, you know, himself and George Mendes can bring in some top players and potentially win the Champions League. You know, his whole uh, mythos is built on winning the Champions League with Porto and with Inter. The fact that he hasn't managed to do that with Chelsea and Real Madrid is a real kind of thorn in his side. Um, and, he, you know, he'd managed to... Equalize and shall I, you know that's that's what he's all about essentially winning the Champions League. But I do wonder actually if he if he really feels if he has the same appetite for it as he did before because you know he's already kind of he's already kind of been to the top of the mountain. You know what I mean? Yeah, as you mentioned with Miguel there, there's loads of reasons why he you're surprised nearly he lasted as long as he did in Real Madrid. At the, what he's doing at the moment is just it's so avoidable. All of it is so it's all in in his head. There's no other outside factors, or rather, there's no internal factors in the club that's forcing him to play like this. All the players love him. Mm. Situation, or, well, they, they did at one point, didn't well, they? All the, the 11 players that he, that he played non-stop last year love him. Yeah. And, like, Abramovich is, you know, a, none of this is coming from Abramovich. None of this is coming no. from inside the club that's poisoning the the atmosphere in there. It's all Mourinho. Well, it's it's one of those it's one of those transfer committee type stories again, I think. I mean, he has been having a bit of a moan about that for like a low-level constant grumble about oh, certain, you know, players and I gave my list to them in April and you know, so it's it's the kind of old story. But but no, the situation is nowhere near as bad as he seems to be making it. I mean, from Abramovich's point of view, the one thing that you know about Abramovich is that he he has complete scorn for um for publicity. You know, for the only time that he's ever kind of, I think the only time pretty much since he joined Chelsea, since the very beginning of that, that he's been quoted on the record in the UK media is when he was involved in that big trial. You know, and he had to, he had to testify in court. I mean, he's in court having to talk and uh, people were able to re- report mm. what he said then. He does not like um, public kind of... Let's say wars of words are the last thing in his mind. When he sees this kind of thing, I can't imagine he's hugely uh, impressed by it. But like, anyway, we'll see if the, apparently Marina's won defeat from the sack, so we could be talking about that pretty soon. Um, in the meantime, we'll talk a little bit about what was happening in the Northeast over the weekend. We're going to be joined by Michael Walker. He was there to see Sunderland defeating Newcastle 3-0. And this is their sixth win in a row against Newcastle. And it's amazing, over the last two, two and a half years, when this has been going on, uh, Sunderland haven't been able to beat almost anyone else, and they have six wins against Newcastle United. Why are Newcastle the only team they're able to beat? Well, that, I mean, that is the question that Sunderland fans, you know, are asking, and the, it has to be asked of the players how they can perform with that kind of commitment and energy and effort over the six games and skill, actually, um, and not 
and not do it in previous games and not do it in subsequent games. I mean, that's one of the things about the record is that um, they they beat Newcastle, but then within a couple of games, you know, they get you know within after the famous Paolo Di Canio derby win at St James's Park where he slides down the touchline, their next away game they lose six one at Aston Villa. You know, people don't people don't talk about that, but that's what happened. Whenever Poirier won his first game, then they then they go and lose at Hull the next week. Um, Dick Advoca wins the game against Newcastle, and then they lose four one at home to Crystal Palace. And those are the same players, you know. So they are, in that sense, they are really unreliable players, reliably unreliable. And um, that is that is the question that has to be answered. Allardyce has to answer that question if he's going to keep them up, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it must be peculiarly maddening to Newcastle fans for this to keep happening. And maybe this is why Adam Johnson's goal celebration seems to have caused a bit of a ruckus. Can you just explain to anyone who didn't see this, what Johnson was doing, and then what some people in the crowd apparently believed he was trying to signify. Well, Johnson score, scores the penalty um, in front of the, the, at the end where the Sunderland fans are. He then runs down like uh, Emmanuel Adebayor, charges right down the, 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 the pitch to celebrate in front of where the Newcastle fans are. Now, they have been giving him lots of abuse over a period of months um, and in Sunday's game about his particular court case and, uh, and things like that. So yeah. he he has received a lot of abuse and perhaps he just erupted. Now, he then, as he was running, he then sort of put his arms out and ran and towards them um, in a sort of uh, wobbly fashion with his arms out. Um, and some have interpreted that as a sign that he was making a gesture about a plane uh, in the kind of way that people used to talk Manchester United fans about Munich, that kind of gesture. Now, that was the the reason that people are 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 interpreting that way is because of the flight M H seventeen, which um, in which two Newcastle fans were killed um, uh, last the summer before last. Now, they Newcastle fans acknowledge this in the seventeenth minute of every game and applaud and. Actually, I was so far away from Newcastle fans, I couldn't hear I couldn't hear them doing it on Sunday. But I think they I think they did all that. Um, and uh, and uh, and then whenever they saw Allardyce, or sorry, some, whenever they saw Johnson run towards them doing this with his arms out and interpreted it as a play, and some then became upset and interpreted it that way. I must admit, I didn't do I didn't think that. That wasn't my my initial reaction was this is like at a bayor and someone needs to get a grip of him and just tell him to calm down. Yeah. Um but and and then once I once I heard afterwards that people were making that connection, I sort of felt that that was like a a willful interpretation. People people like to be offended, don't they, in this modern world. And yeah. um, they like to get worked up. Yeah. Um so it, I mean, it didn't come up in the press conference or anything. I think most people just you know are not making that interpretation. It may have to be that Johnson has to say something to clarify the situation. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't even. I don't even think he should have to be honest no, because I, it's... I, I personally don't think he should. But it depends on whether this gets ahead of steam and people, you know, shouty shout, 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 which is the modern world we live in, the <laughs> modern football world. You, you, you were talking about Sunderland's lack of consistency there in following up these games, uh, these wins against Newcastle with results against anyone else. But Newcastle have been wildly inconsistent yeah. this season. I mean, I'm looking at the last couple of games, 3-0 obviously defeated 
uh, um, uh, yesterday. But 6-2, they beat Norwich the week before. Then they lost 6-1 to Man City. And then they had that 2-0 draw with Chelsea. So it's just been, uh, you never know which team is, is going to turn up. No, I, I agree. I mean, they are really, they are really inconsistent. And they, and they have lots of the same players who have been inconsistent over a period of time. You know, they would go and, you know, one of the, one of the criticisms of Alan Pardew from, from Tyneside was that he's a streaky manager who would go in these streaks of victories and Newcastle would have suddenly win five in a row, then lose five in a row. And these are the same players. And you just, that was part of the frustration was that there wasn't, um, a con- consistent progress. Now, McLaren's much, you know, you sort of get the impression that McLaren's, you know, methodical in a way and that it should be more consistent. But actually, um, the evidence so far isn't. You know, they go, they go to Manchester City, play pretty well, go 1-0 up, and then concede six. You know, it's just, it, it's inexplicable, you know. And then, then they score six against Norwich, but could have easily conceded four or five themselves. I mean, I wasn't impressed by that performance at all, and that's why I thought Sunderland would win um, yesterday. However, Sunderland won despite being inferior to Newcastle. I was, Newcastle were pretty good for until Colatini's, um penalty, you know. And then, so you know, so you have that. It's peculiar what is what what is going on at Newcastle as well. Yeah. Um, but over the course of a season, I think that Newcastle have enough to stay up. I think they'll spend in January. I just don't know about Sunderland. Um, and I think Allardyce, it will be interesting because Sunderland have a hard run now. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see. Allardyce, in his opening press conference, talked about the importance of January the 1st. And that's that's going to be a big moment for the club um, if they're going to sign players in January the 1st or you know in the first few days of the transfer window rather than wait. Yeah. Because if they wait... He'll, he'll not be happy. Well, Sunderland are at least now above Newcastle in the table. Yeah. And the only team below Newcastle now is Aston Villa, and we all know what happened at Aston Villa. Yeah. Um, so, Stephen McLaren has got to be worried about this. So, he's lost seven games out of 12. I think so much of it always depends on how, uh, on what the fans think about a manager before he arrives. For instance, if, for, if say, Jurgen Klopp was to lose seven of his first 12 matches at Liverpool, yeah. he'd probably still be okay yeah. because people would say, oh, he's, you know, this is just the, the you know, teething uh, troubles, you know, Klopp's a great manager. What do you think the impression is of Steve McLaren at Newcastle? Because he's, he's, he's in a predicament not many managers are in. Maybe David Moyes is another one in the same boat as Steve McLaren, where he did have a huge job and he failed in such a way that it wasn't just a typical failure. He ended up kind of being made a fool of, you know, yeah. being being mocked and so on. Uh, he went away and, and you know, managed to, in Europe and kind of, he's been through this process of, say, rehabilitation in terms of his image in England. But I wonder, do people in, uh, do people in Newcastle think of Steve McLaren as the Wally with the Brawley or, you know, Steve McLaren, the unfairly maligned uh, guy who's who didn't actually do such a bad job with England and who, given time, will turn this club around? I think I think they're I think it's sort of they don't think either. I don't think they think he's a Wally with a brolly or he's the solution. They just think that he's in the middle somewhere, and that he is, you know, he is the appointment for a mid-table appointment for a mid-table club with mid-table ambition. You know, the, the ambition is set from the top, and despite the um, Newcastle spending money in the, in this summer's window. 
it doesn't it doesn't make up for the money they haven't spent in previous windows. You know, and, and fans are very you know fans the fans have a, a view that takes in more than the last few games, despite what people think that it's all knee jerk. Actually, it isn't. They actually take a long term view of things, and they would actually like to see steady progress over long term. That's what they want. Um, but um, it, it and, and McLaren sort of fits that mold that, that it might be, you know slow step by step and he's talked about three transfer windows at the end of three transfer windows he says we'll have a real team now that takes in january and then next summer so he's talking about next next october mm. that that's when you know that's when he should be judged or whatever and actually i think the fans will will give him that you know so i don't think there is because i think they've had Newcastle have experienced so much turmoil under Mike Garcia and under um, the Shepherd Hall regime before that that this is sort of there is a, a level of weariness with that kind of turmoil. They don't want that um, constant drama. They don't like being portrayed as dramatists either. Um, they want. They think that the, the one thing that's consistent is that you know, fifty thousand of them turn up for every home game. That's that's what they think is consistent and that they fill the away end at every ground they go to. Uh, so that's where they think they are consistent. Now, the interesting thing about Norwich, and I, I don't know whether it was because it was a Sunday kickoff or whatever, it was, was just that you know the, the attendance dropped to 47,000. Now, that's down from 52 capacity. You sort of think that no one really talks about that, but it's noticed in the town. And there may be that there is what all... Newcastle diehards say is that lots of their fellow diehards have simply walked away and chucked it in and that there's a different kind of um, atmosphere surrounding the, the club because there's a different kind of supporter. So that's, that's interesting as well, whether, whether that new kind of supporter and the, the away day trippers who come down from Edinburgh now in big numbers and things like that, you know, whether that's, um, whether that's altering the sort of whether that makes it more knee-jerk or less knee-jerk, I don't know, actually. But, you know, there's definitely there's, there's a, a change in the atmosphere around the club. And I think that that's reflected in, in yesterday. There, I don't think there was outrage at Newcastle's performance or outrage at the defeat. You know, they were, they've been much angrier in, in previous um, situations. Yeah, yeah. Well... It's interesting and doesn't sound too promising. Michael Walker, uh, thanks for me for coming on. And <laughs> no, it's not too promising. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city... Knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Yeah, Newcastle are at least uh, going to contest the red card to Fabrizio Colaccini. It didn't seem like a kind of a harsh red card to me. I mean, one of those were. I don't know, Samaros is saying, look, Samaros is in such a good mood after this one, having not only got his first win as Sunderland manager, but also beaten Newcastle, which is always a sweet moment for him, that uh, he was even prepared to say, I'm not really sure if Fabrizio Calcini should have been sent off, but the rules are the rules. I, it's, it's just one of those, it's just one of those almost like a Greek tragedy, you know, where the rules of the universe are, are, are just set in place 
and you've got you know a poor the poor victim uh, Fabrizio Colaccini through not much fault of his own really is just drawn into the kind of cogs of this cosmic machine and just ground into a mince and there's nothing really that anyone could do about it people are just standing by going oh this is awful this is terrible but you know the gods will be appeased and unfortunately on this occasion uh, Fabrizio Colaccini got turned into mince <laughs> yeah it it probably was a penalty all right it was uh, but the sending off did seem a little I think referees kind of do that sometimes as well it's like when they're not really sure that it's a penalty they they often double down and say, yeah. no, i got to back myself here. Yeah, I'll give him, a, give him the red card as if well. If you're giving him the penalty, why aren't you giving him the red card? Yeah, That's what Sam would have been saying if the red card hadn't come out. Uh, but look, this actually has, has been an interesting discussion. Maybe it's something we should do more often, talking about referees' uh, decisions that have been made over mm. the weekend without any footage yeah. uh, to, to refer to. Simply talking about referees' uh, decisions is something we might think about bring more into future podcasts for now. We could probably get a bed for that or something, you know, some sort of musical jingle. With a whistle to start it off with. Yeah. And then we'll just, you know, what the player's done there and yeah. just try and describe it using All movements that, that are completely tense. invisible to the list- to the podcast listeners' uh, uh, experience. We are uh, going to wrap it up about now. So this is, that is it for the Irish Times Second Captains uh, football podcast for today. However, the other uh, podcast, the general podcast is Irish Times Second Captains sports podcast is going to be out a little bit later on, featuring Owen McDowett, who will have just run a marathon, literally. Mm. Um, Elliot, too, who, who will also have run a marathon, considerably faster. Well, well, fa- you know, everyone's a winner, Ken. Yeah. And uh, and a bit of... And, and we're going to talk a little bit of rugby and, and who knows what else besides. So tune in for that and we will talk to you again on Thursday. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 